and we will go on to talk about um, what you can do with ultra-fast laser pulses. We talked last time about how to generate them, different types of lasers that you might use, and uh, ways of detecting them and getting the pulses through your experiment. We didn't really talk about what they're useful for. Um, so I did mention at the beginning of the class last time one sort of inherent contradiction when you use ultra-fast pulses for a spectroscopy. Because they're very short in time, they have a broad spectral bandwidth. And that means that you can't use them to differentiate absorption at different frequencies. A pulse that gets absorbed at one frequency will probably get absorbed at many frequencies uh, because it has a large frequency, uh, large frequency content. However, because all the energy in the laser is compressed into a very short time, you have very high peak powers, and that can be useful um, for generating ionization. You can get multi-photon processes that kick the energy level of the ground state up to the point where it's your atom or molecule is ionized. And so if you're doing some sort of uh, ion counting as your method of detecting the interaction of the light with the sample, um, this can be an efficient way to do it. So remember there was a technique called REMPI, Resonant Enhanced Multi-Photon Ionization, that required multiple photons. And when we introduced it, we talked about it as uh, multiple photons going in different directions so that you could overcome the Doppler limit um, being absorbed and kicking the, the ground state to an intermediate state and finally to an ionized state and then counting the ion. So a similar thing can be done using ultra-fast optics pretty easily. Um, one of the big advantages of using ultra-fast is that because the pulse is delta function-like, meaning in time, it's very much uh, uh, impulsive uh, kick to your system, a very uh, short time window in which the light interacts with the system. That allows you to measure with very uh, precise time resolution dynamic effects in an experiment. Um, that can be useful, for example, in measuring lifetime of some upper state or uh, the lifetime of some, some uh, product in a chemical reaction. And we'll look today at a couple of, at an example of a pump probe experiment that uses multiple ultrafast pulses uh, to measure to sort of measure the start and end time very precisely of a dynamic effect. Um, and the duration of the uh, we'll look at the lifetime measurement of a sample can be measured with very high temporal precision using femtosecond pulses. Okay, so one of the ways that you would detect the interaction of your light with matter is with uh, counting ions. So we've mentioned that before with REMPI. We haven't talked about how you would go about measuring ion, uh, ion counts. So one way is with mass spectroscopy. So you hear about mass spectrometers on board uh, lunar landers and Martian rovers and things like that. The idea is that uh, when you ionize a, an atom, and you now have an ion, you can manipulate that with external electric and magnetic fields. So an electric field can accelerate that. And so just like you have a cathode ray tube, 
accelerating electrons, you can accelerate your ion or the electrons that are ejected from it and send them down through a vacuum tube. And in the presence of a strong magnetic field, you can get them to bend. And the amount that they bend is proportional, well, their, their radius of curvature is proportional to the, uh, the charge to mass ratio. So by changing the magnetic field, you can uh, arrange for some of the ions with a proper charge to mass ratio to come over here and hit your ion detector. And then you can sweep the strength of the magnetic field, and basically scan over all the charge to mass ratios that you wish to consider, and count your ions here. So that's a form of spectroscopy. You can differentiate different ions based on their charge and mass. Um, not on the energy levels, per se, that the, uh, the laser excited. Okay, so uh, pump probe measurements are another instance where uh, ultra-fast optics can be, can be useful. So pump probe measurement means you have two different lasers or two different beams interacting with your system. And here we're going to uh, want to measure some dynamic effect. And we'll essentially use the first pulse to turn on the effect and then the second one to measure uh, how much of it remains after some later period of time. Okay, so uh, consider a system where we have a ground state some upper state that we can excite through uh, absorption of a pump photon, and then some additional upper state that we can pump to from there. So if we uh, shoot our sample with a pulse, we can knock it up to this state, and then if we immediately shoot it with another pulse, transfer the energy up to the higher state. If we wait too long between the pulses, then we'd expect the energy in this intermediate state to decay back down. So depending on how long you wait between your two pulses, uh, you may or may not get absorption of the second pulse, the probe. So here is a time sequence that shows a short pump pulse followed by a short pul probe pulse and some time delay tau between them. And now what's plotted is the absorption of the probe as a function of tau, the time delay. So this plot right here is constructed from a series of measurements. Right? You send in a pump followed by a probe with some time delay. You measure the absorption of the probe. You plot it. You change the time delay. You plot the next point. Um, and what we see is typical result for a, uh, an intermediate level that's decaying via fluorescence. So it has some natural lifetime. We expect some exponential decay. And that's what we see here. Okay, so this leading edge is, well, what, what do you think that leading edge might be due to? 
So yeah, that's the time it takes for the pump to pump the intermediate level. So if the pump and probe are simultaneous, um, there's some time delay for the upper state to get populated during time during which the probe is not being absorbed. Um, so this distance here corresponds essentially to the pump length. And sort of the temporal resolution that we have here is limited by the probe length. And so if those can both be made very short, what we end up with is essentially a, a trace of the upper state population as a function of time. Paul? Why does the uh, probe have to be uh, uh, a, a pulse as well? Why can't you have a continuous output to this instantaneous? Can anyone else answer that question? Why does the probe have to be a pulse? Well, first of all, what if it were CW? Take the extreme. Let's say you are continuously illuminating this, this sample, measuring the absorption, and you pump it very quickly, excite uh, population up to this intermediate state. What you'd expect is that you see some absorption, absorption build up, and then you turn off the pump, and that absorption will decay. Right. Uh, okay, and that's true. And certainly for things with long upper state lifetimes, you might see that. What if the lifetime of this is 10 femtoseconds? Then What's the problem with that experiment? It's like well, the issue is not so much the laser as it is what are you detecting it with? Anyone recall the uh, typical time response of a photo detector? It's, yeah, so nanosecond is a safe bet. I mean, there's, it depends on the geometry of the detector and a number of factors, but you know, nanosecond is a reasonable estimate. So if you, let's plot what you'd see if you take a uh, uh, response time equals one nanosecond detector, and you hit it with a very short pulse. So we've got a short pulse coming in, and then we measure the V out as a function of T. And we'll let this be the point where the pulse arrives. One nanosecond response time means you can think of this as a system that averages over one nanosecond. Think of it as a low-pass filter that filters below a gigahertz. Those are equivalent effects. Okay, so the spectral response of this pulse, um, I'll call this the input and the voltage out. The input spectrum might cover the full. Uh, ah, that's, I can't do it. 
might cover the full uh, optical spectrum, which in frequency is going to be on the order of 10 to the 15 hertz of bandwidth. If you now take a filter that's a low-pass filter that has a gigahertz frequency bandwidth, it's essentially only going to see a much narrower region of the spectrum, which would correspond to a broader pulse. In the time domain, what we have is our pulse may arrive and look like that. But if one nanosecond is much longer than the length of our pulse, what we're going to see is, well, not quite like that. I'm just going to average out. So you typically don't have detectors that can follow rapid changes. And so this experiment gets around that because using a pulsed pump and probe, what you see is some absorption of the probe. I mean, if you know what the total, well, oftentimes the power of a pulse is not necessarily given. If I go back, I actually can find an example of this, I think, in the notes. Let me look at the uh, spec sheet for, here we go. So here are the damage thresholds for a particular optic for both pulsed operation and CW operation. So CW operation, they list some maximum irradiance, one megawatt per centimeter squared. Now, for pulsed operation, you could also figure out some maximum irradiance, but that's not how it's given. It's given as 5 joules per centimeter squared in a 20, 20 nanosecond pulse. So you'll notice the units are given as the total energy of the pulse divided by the area which it occupies. And the reason that is is because with pulsed operation, your photodetectors often are not fast enough to follow the pulse. So what they measure is just a total energy in the pulse dumped into them. Right? It's, if you average the, the power over the, uh, over the response time of the detector, you get the energy deposited in one response time. And it doesn't matter whether it's continuously deposited or deposited in a short burst. Because the detector has a limited response time, it would respond to both of those the same. OK, so the detectors typically will only measure the total power in the pulse, but can't, can't resolve the time, uh, any time structure in the pulse that's faster than the detector response. OK, so in this experiment, your detector won't follow the rise and fall of that probe pulse. It'll just measure total energy, It'll give you a signal that's proportional to the total energy. And so if you know what that is in the absence of the pump, probe, pump pulse, then you know what your unattenuated signal looks like. And then you turn on the pump and have a time delay, and you measure that 
and compare it to the previous measurement, that's what tells you how much absorption there is. And essentially, that's, it's a single data point. Right? You're sending in your pump and probe with a known time delay, and you're just reading how much energy comes out in the, pro in the probe. You're not uh, following it in time. OK, so um, how do you think you generate a time delay that's on the order of femtoseconds? So there's a good chance we're going to want to use the same laser for the pump and the probe. Uh, just practical considerations. Controlling the time very accurately is easier to do if you're using the same laser as opposed to trying to synchronize two of them. And then you could build what looks like a Mox Ender interferometer. and make use of the fact that there's different path lengths for the two paths. And by moving one of these mirrors, put it on a translation stage with a micrometer, move it back and forth, you can delay pulse that travels the part of the pulse that goes through here versus the part that goes through there. So if the L1 equals L2, but if they're not equal, you get a separation of the pulses in space that's given by the difference in path length. Okay, so something like a micron of path length difference will give you something like a femtosecond of time delay. We saw something like this before for measuring ultra-short pulses. It's called an autocorrelator. And we had some output optics here that were meant to detect how much overlap there was between the pulses. In our case that I showed, it was a second harmonic crystal. Um, and as you change the length of one arm relative to the other, you pass the two beams through each other, and you essentially um, transfer a measurement in time, which is very, very fast, to a measurement in space, which is much more doable. You can get relatively large path length differences accounting for very small time delays. So it's common in an ultra-fast experiment to see something like this, some sort of uh, splitting of the beam and uh, adjustable path lengths between it. And that's just for setting precise timing between different parts of the pulse. OK, so here's a real-world example of this. Uh, this is a paper which I did not assign as reading, but um, if you're interested, I can, I can uh, dig it up for you. Um, Ultra-fast carrier dynamics in conjugated polymers and organic molecular crystals. So this is interesting. It's the Nobel Prize in chemistry, 
2002 was for the uh, discovery of conductive polymers that were uh, that are the basis for all sorts of interesting things that are being done now, like the cell phones, thin film transistors, organic light emitting diodes that are involved in the fancy stuff you hear about flexible displays and next generation technologies are largely based on um, this idea that conduction in polymers uh, allows flexible conductors and some interesting uh, geometries for application that's not available in inorganic materials. Um, the mechanism for how these organic polymers become conductive or uh, semiconductive, semiconductors, is not fully understood. There are two main theories, or at least uh, this paper was written, which is just a few years ago. I don't have a date on there. It's, it's only a few years old. You can, it notes the Nobel Prize is in 2000, so it's at least, at most, nine years old. I think it's three or four years old. Um, there are two main hypotheses. One is that, like a traditional semiconductor, you have some uh, valence band that absorbs a photon of enough energy to kick an electron up into this conduction band, leaving behind a hole, and that those electron holes can then conduct. And the alternative theory was that the excited electron remained bound to the hole that was left behind in what's called an exciton. And that exciton into electron hole pair that are free to conduct. Um, but both of these processes were expected to occur over femtosecond timescales. So using conventional monitoring of charge carrier dynamics would not allow you to resolve the difference between which of these things is happening. Um, so the traditional way you might deal with this, uh, if you wanted to measure how the, say, the conductivity changes as a function of time after a, uh, after a pump provides some energy to uh, excite these electron hole pairs, you might send in a, a short pulse into your uh, organic polymers here, and then measure the conductivity. So you apply a voltage across the, the system, and in the presence of uh, free charges produced by this uh, pulse, you'd expect to see some conduction. You might measure that on an oscilloscope as a, uh, a voltage across a resistor. And your oscilloscope, if you spent a lot of money on it, might have a time resolution of about 20 picoseconds. That's a $100,000 oscilloscope. One that you buy for 5,000 bucks might have a 100 megahertz, uh, uh, 10 nanosecond temporal response. And if the models are saying that the difference between the two interesting things occurs on a femtosecond time scale, you're not going to be able to resolve it, this technique. So this is a the traditional technique. It's just not applicable or useful in this ultra-fast regime. So what might you do? You do the pump, pump probe experiment, and you uh, make use of the fact that the free electrons are going to uh, increase the absorption of the material. 
here's that experiment. Uh, we have the sample here. It's being illuminated by, this shows sort of two separate beams. I don't know whether those are physically separated or whether it's just for clarity in the drawing, but the uh, first one is called the pump, the latter one is called the probe, and they're uh, temporarily separated by some small time frame, some to second time. And then here is what's seen as the delay of the probe is varied. The, this is the transmission, or here the amount of absorption being plotted, just like what we saw in the previous. This is actually from the paper, shows the uh, peak and then the slow decay. So this decay that's shown is over the order of picoseconds, but the resolution in it comes from the width of that uh, pulse, which can be as small as a femtosecond. Um, okay, so a femtosecond pulse, what type of laser could produce a femtosecond pulse? There's a couple answers here. We talked about different mechanisms that produce pulsed light in lasers. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so dye laser is one uh, class of lasers. Uh, so, first, what are the different mechanisms? There is Q switching, uh, modulating the, the pump, there's mode locking. Self-terminating lasing. Does anybody remember which of those gives the shortest pulses? Uh, mode, locking. mode locking does. So you could do it with a dye laser. There's one other type of laser that could be useful. Titanium sapphire. So why a dye laser or titanium sapphire? Broad spectrum, right. Okay, so a couple characteristics of an ultra-fast experiment. If you were to look at the experimental setup, you might see something like this, a fine delay of a pump and a probe. Um, you'd expect to see a tie sapphire or a dye laser as the source. Um, and that, that's going to wrap up then our discussion of ultra-fast optics. About a half an hour to review. Any questions first on the ultra-fast spectroscopy? I updated it. Yeah, I updated it uh, I don't know, last night or this morning. So, I, and I put in the in the title uh, the images are have been corrected. So if you if you didn't see that when you downloaded the lecture notes, then you, you might want to go back and, and download the most recent set. Can you explain the uh, picture resolution once more? The temporal resolution. Uh, I, I will. I'm going to answer your question, but let me uh, generalize this to let's uh, draw out what an ultra-fast experiment might look like, and then from everything that we've drawn, let's work out what the, uh, the temporal resolution will be. So let's take the case that we just saw, ultra-fast carrier dynamics. And let's assume that our, um, our sample produces charge carriers in the presence of our laser pulse. 
and that those charge carriers produce absorption of a subsequent laser pulse. So let's design an experiment that can measure the uh, lifetime of those charge carriers before they recombine. Here's a sample. What do we need to add? Pump and a probe. Melissa? The, the, a laser? From the same laser? OK. So uh, we need a laser. What type of laser should we use? OK, so let's use a tie sapphire laser. And we want to mode lock that, right? So I'll just call that mode locked. I could draw a diagram of what's going on inside of there, but I won't. We have to get our Thai Sapphire laser to the sample. And we need to separate the pulses into a pump part and a probe part. Okay, how can we do that? Okay, so what would be wrong with an interferometer the way I actually drew it before? Which might be something like this. Uh, let me make this a little more complete. So there's my beam splitters, there's my mirrors. What potential issues would I face with that device? There are a lot of reflections, although reflections generally aren't a problem. Uh, the bigger problem is, what's the opposite of reflection? Yeah, refraction, transmission. Transmission is a problem here. Why? Yes, I would expect this to have high peak powers based on nothing more than the fact that I'm compressing the, the pulse into such a small temporal period. Um, and so there'd likely be damage occurring here inside the, the transmissive optics. So we try to avoid transmissive optics whenever we can. Um, so one way you can do that is with a grating. And then use different orders, diffraction grading as your, be as your beam splitter. Um, the challenge there might be that because this is such a wide bandwidth, those orders might actually overlap. They might, might not. It just depends on the amount of bandwidth I have. Um, another thing I might choose to do is just expand the beam to reduce the, uh, the irradiance. Um, or what else can I do to minimize the peak power? 
I'll draw it. Yeah. So this is called a stretcher or a pulse stretcher. It would look like this in an experimental diagram. It might just be a black box that says pulse, pulse stretcher, or it might actually show a pair of diffraction gratings, which is physically what it is. And I'll draw my pulse. I've got a short pulse there. And I've got a longer, lower amplitude pulse. Now I can do my uh, splitting. So adding a path length difference of delta L will produce a temporal difference of delta L over C in the two pulses from the two paths. And then what should I do before I send that into the sample? Compress it again. Yeah. What kind of detector should I use? What's that? Thermal detector? So my option is a thermal detector, uh, photodiode. Photomultiplier tube. Photodiode, I might have a choice of materials. Silicon, indium, gallium, arsenide would be the two. Would be likely choices. So, which of these would I definitely not use? Why not? So, I have a lot of power. Um, or a lot of energy, presumably. So a photomultiplier tube, I just 
and saturate it immediately. Um, OK, so I could use either of these. I think I would be inclined to use a thermal detector. I think Jack was on to something. Did you want to explain your reason? Yeah, we can't, we're only going to measure the energy in a single pulse. That'll be one data point. And then we're essentially going to repeat the pulse and repeat the measurement. So um, the big advantage of a photodiode is it has a faster response than a thermal detector. That's not really relevant here since we're not monitoring continuously the power. What's, what are some of the advantages of a thermal detector over a photodiode then? Yeah, so here we have a very large bandwidth source. Um, so we want our detector to be sensitive over that full spectrum. And a thermal detector is essentially a well-designed thermal detector. It's a black body. It absorbs equally at all frequencies and just measures how much power is incident by how much the detector heats up. Um, so this is good when you need a large spectrum. The photodiodes. Silicon in indium gallium arsenide has spectral responses that cross at about one micron. This is silicon. This is in gas. And Thai sapphire laser. probably better suited to a silicon detector, but you've got this frequency dependent dependence in there that, uh, that may be problematic. So a thermal detector has some, you could probably use either of these. There are some uh, sort of theoretical advantages to the thermal detector or maps on a little bit better uh, to this, this problem. Um, there's also the issue of damage. Right here. Um, well, you have a couple options. You can. Um, so yes and no. It, it certainly could, and it could damage the photodiode as well. What you want is to have a very large thermal mass that it's going to hit so that you don't have to worry about optical damage uh, because you're not, this isn't a transmissive optic. So it's just going to take all the energy and absorb it, and you don't really care if it drills a little hole in it as long as the heat that gets deposited in that hole eventually flows into the detector itself. Um, so they make thermal detectors that are very fast for thermal detectors that are really just a thin sheet of graphite, just a few microns thick. Uh, you might damage that. You might actually ablate all the graphite. Or you can get these things that are I mean, just a big chunk of iron, essentially. Um, so just you'd have to choose the thermal detector appropriately. Um, OK, so that's. I think that's a pretty good uh, 
experimental setup. Now we want to plot out the response time. We're going to do that measuring the absorbed power versus time. And that time is going to be tau. So remember, we'll set this to some value. We will record a single point. And then we will change this. Uh, how do we know what tau is? How do we know? OK, so we know how much it changes. But how do we know where tau equals 0? I mean, we, we need to adjust this within a few microns around the point where these two arms are equal path length. How do you know that you have one pole? If you put any detector on this, you're just going to see energy being in. What did I say would happen when, uh, well, what is our graph going to look like? Something like that. And what was responsible for this? Uh, the pump to build up. So if the, if the probe comes before the pump, then they've just switched and your probe is your pump. So the, the pump is always the one that comes last. Um, but what happens if you just start with this mirror, say, too far this way, and you just sweep it in? In other words, what if I extend this curve out to negative values of tau? You get a reflection. So now how can I find out where tau is equal to 0? Yeah. So it's sort of a self-calibrating system. Um, I can find where tau is equal to 0. If I want to calibrate this axis, I can either, you know, I can read off the values on my micrometer. Well, if, that's, uh, if I need higher precision than that, I could do something like send in a laser here, say a CW laser, maybe a Heaney, something like that. Simple laser, measure the output fringes. It's just a Michelson interferometer. Every time I move this by uh, half a wavelength, I get a change in the fringe. So I could do some calibration that way. OK, so. Let's say I build up to that level. And let's say the underlying population density of the upper state has an exponential decay. But just for the sake of understanding the resolution, let's say there's some fine structure to that. Like for some unknown reason, the population density all of a sudden jumps up. Or if you like, all of a sudden drops off to zero. Something shorts out the system, and all the 
charge carriers can immediately recombine at this time. We would expect that our measurement will follow this line. The total absorbed power will be proportional to the population density of the charge carriers. And then if we instantaneously turn them off, what would you expect to happen when your, okay, so let's, if our probe is right here, our probe is going to see an absorption level proportional to charge carriers at this level. What happens when our probe is centered on the uh, sharp cutoff? Yeah, you'd expect that the level that you see, the level of absorption you see would decrease by half at that point. Right? Half of the half of the probe is going to see the charge carriers when they're there, half of it sees after the uh, transition. And then how far does the probe need to go out before it no longer sees any absorption? And just yeah, to the point where it's uh, the tape whatever level you consider negligible pulse amplitude is after the transition. And so that range of uh, probe positions or probe time delays gives you the uh, width of the response to a delta function input of your system. In other words, that range of widths gives you the response time of your system. And that range of widths is uh, essentially the full width half max of the probe. It's numerically related to by a factor of order unity. So what we would see in that case is that sharp transition getting rounded off and the, our ability to resolve, or to immediately turn back on, our ability to resolve that would be limited by the width of the probe. that answer your question? Okay, so here we're measuring um, these ultra-fast dynamics, but let's say we have a similar experiment, or similar thing that we want to do, but now our sample has these charge carriers that are long-lived. So we no longer need all the complexity of the ultra-fast experiment. We could do the same technique and just have very long time delays, but this is a million dollar experiment. Let's try to do it for less money with less resources. And we don't need the ultra-fast system anymore. We don't need a tie sapphire laser doesn't need to be mode locked. How could we repeat this measurement using a longer time scale? What would be the sensible way to set up the same measurement? Say microseconds. Microseconds is 
essentially slow compared to anything in our experiment. We can get pulses faster than that, we can get detectors faster than that. So as slow as you want it to be. Um, any thoughts? Before we draw all the details of the experiment, what are some big picture ideas? Okay, we could do a pump probe experiment. We just had a pump probe experiment. We could do similar, similar type of thing. Uh, any other? Uh, we, uh, we, I could draw the exact same diagram and just say that that's a Q-switched nanosecond laser instead of a mode-locked femtosecond laser. That would be another pump probe experiment. Uh, so that's, that's true. Uh, what other techniques might we use? We're creating ions. One way to measure the presence of the ions is to measure the absorption in the probe. What was another way of measuring ions? Uh, so the uh, mass spectrometer? Yeah. We could do it. Mass spectrometer, we can just measure the con conductivity directly. OK, so let's do that. Uh, let's say we want to measure the uh, user sample, and let's apply a voltage across this, ground that plate, uh, put a large negative voltage on this plate, that will pull the positive ions through, and then we'll have an ion counter here. What are we going to want to do? What kind of laser might we want? What kind of optics might we want in between here? What does the experiment need to do? It needs to create ions, right? So it's generally going to take a large, large amount of energy. Right? I mean, ionization is essentially exciting to the highest energy level. So without knowing anything about our sample, we're probably going to want high intensities from the laser. Um, that may come by focusing the light to a very small spot, or it may come by having it compressed in time. So we might choose something like a Q-switched laser. So what would the time, the temporal pulse width of a Q-switched laser be, roughly? Nanosecond. Okay, so so uh, we'll call it delta t about a nanosecond. That's my pulse. And I send it through the sample. Measure the ion count.
should see a very similar type of uh, structure. The leading edge is going to be uh, its temporal resolution of that leading edge, or the, the width of that leading edge is going to be given by the width of my pulse laser. So if my time delay is in the order of uh, a microsecond, then a nanosecond laser is plenty fast that, uh, that I'm not losing any significant resolution from that leading edge. I don't need to worry about a detector here because I'm not detecting the light. I'm detecting the ions. Well, I'm, I'm drawing, there's a couple different options, it, not all of which would necessarily be required. There's basically three ways you can get, that you might, three things you might do to get ionization. One is use very high energy photons, so ultraviolet photons essentially. The issue there is those are expensive. So there aren't too many lasers that put out ultraviolet photons. You can do some nonlinear optics to get them, and most materials uh, that you might make lenses and windows out of are opaque in the ultraviolet. This is why the semiconductor industry has had such a difficult time going to 32 nanometer fabs and, and such as all their lithography that they do. They needed to redesign all the optics because the few silica optics become opaque beyond about 300 nanometers. So to get down an order of magnitude below that, you need first you go to lithium fluoride and magnesium fluoride optics are transmissive down to about 200 nanometers. And beyond that, you have to completely get rid of transmissive optics because nothing transmits ultraviolet. And far enough into the ultraviolet, nothing transmits. Um, so they use all reflective optics. Uh, so anyhow, it's a big pain, I guess is what I'm saying. So uh, if you can't get high energy single photons, you have to provide a lot of low energy photons and expect some sort of uh, cascading process where you pump to an intermediate level and then multi-photon. Multi so remember the term for this type of experiment was called REMPI, Resonant Enhanced Multi-Photon Ionization. The multi-photon means that there's uh, multiple photons being absorbed. The single photon is not enough energy, so we don't necessarily need an ultraviolet light source. Um, but you do need high intensity so that there's a lot of photons available to increase the, uh, the probability of a multi-photon event. So one way to do that is to compress the pulse into a compress the energy into a short pulse, and that's one of the one of the things a Q-switch laser is commonly used for is increasing peak power. And the other thing that you can easily do is just put a lens in and focus the light down to a small spatial extent. You can do both of those. You can do one of the two. I mean you're. You're going to want your light focused inside the sample either way. Um, the size of the spot here is governed by the numerical aperture of this lens. If you go to a very high numerical aperture lens, you can get smaller and smaller spots. Um, so those are just a couple key elements of the experiment.
let's say our sample is a gas. And we want to observe using the same ion counting technique the uh, uh, maybe the level of some intermediate energy level. So we have uh, ionization energy level above which we have free ion, we have a ground state, and we have some intermediate state, E intermediate. And we want to measure the uh, energy level of this intermediate state. What do we need, what might we change about our experiment to do that accurately with a high precision? So that's what we're going to be doing is uh, pumping to here and then continuing on to the ionization state. That's what we're doing to begin with anyways. It's just we, in the initial experiment that I described, we didn't really care about where this intermediate energy level was. And now we're trying to find out at what energy level that is. Okay. So there's two things that I see that we have to change about this experiment. We need, yes, that's the first one is, we've got this ultra-short laser that has a very large spread in frequency content. So it's not going to be useful for resolving a uh, specific frequency spectrum. So let's get rid of the Q-switch laser. And let's just go to something that's tunable. And I say CW, it could be pulsed, but if it's pulsed, we don't want such short pulses. Yes, it could be microsecond pulses or so. Okay, so that improves our frequency resolution. So instead of having photons of all different energies coming in, we now have uh, just, if you like, all photons of a relatively constant energy. And so as I tune this, what I would expect to see, so as I adjust the frequency of the laser, and I plot my, the voltage from my ion counter, I would expect to see a range of frequencies over which I get ionization. So I'm neglecting any other intermediate levels. I'm just assuming that it's a simple system. Uh, what is likely limiting the width of that the re resolution? Doppler, right? Why, why do you suggest that? It's a gas, yeah. It's when you see a gas, that's when you should think Doppler effect is going to be important here. How do you overcome that Doppler limit? 
So we can't tell the difference between a system that has one intermediate energy level and one that has two that are closely spaced. We call that E1 and E2. They would both, if E1 and E2 correspond to frequencies that are within that, that line width, we wouldn't be able to resolve them. So now we want to send in light in both directions. So my lens isn't uh, so important here. We'll send light in in both directions. So if it's a CW laser, I don't need to worry about the temporal overlap of these two beams. Right? They're CW. If this is pulsed, I just need to make sure that the pulses are both going through at the same time. Right? If I had a mode-locked laser, I wouldn't physically set up my experiment like this because I'd get one pulse going through before the other pulse got there. OK, so if I do that, uh, then what would I expect to see for my spectrum here? So I'd get a natural line width. So would I see something like maybe like this? Okay, so there may be some saturation broadening that may be present in both cases. Um, but what I was actually getting at was that uh, if I block this beam, I'm back to my original experiment. Right? And I should get the same results. So I should still have this Doppler limited line. But there should be some additional uh, ionization that occurs due to the interaction of the two beams. And that's going to produce some lines that sit on top of this. And this height should be the same as that height. Because I have an equal probability of absorbing photons in opposite directions as photons in the same direction. Same direction absorption, regardless of which direction, gives me this spectrum. Opposite direction absorption gives me that spectrum. I have both of those happening simultaneously, so I see the sum. Um, okay, so these are the types of things that you should be thinking about for the test on Monday. Um, being able to translate the theory into experimental practice. I know that's tough because uh, I've tried to do examples of that, but it's, it's somewhat of a conceptual leap. Um, so you should practice the examples we've done in class. Uh, if you have access to any journals, you certainly do with the library, you might just consider looking at some actual experiments and trying to identify what the features are there for, what the different components are there for, because um, that's what I'm going to ask you to do in the exam.